Yeah, it's been a great week around here. It's been so much fun. Give it up for them one more time. Man. Yeah, Sly, Sly and the whole family stone would be proud of that. We, uh, we've been just celebrating around here all weekend. We got some cool stuff going on. Uh, we got our open house at the West Ca- Campus happening today from 1 to 3.30. So you can make your way up there. We're going to have some hot dogs and Cokes and stuff like that for you guys as you check that place out. There's also directions online in case you live in Colorado and don't know how to get to I-70. Uh, that's, there, that's there for you. Also, a bunch of you may have walked in and seen the big, huge pile of backpacks and immediately did what a lot of us did and went, oh, crap, I totally forgot. Uh, um, you can go fill those up, bring them back after the service if you want. You can bring them this, uh, this whole week to, to uh, the lobby out there. But after this week, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. If you're a week late, we can't help you. But if you're a few days late, we're here for you. All right. Hey, question for you. How many of you remember the first time you were at a celebration where there, were, where there was dancing? Anybody remember the first time? Uh, maybe, it was a, maybe it was a party. Maybe it was a family reunion. Maybe it was a wedding uh, like it was for me. I, I'd been to some weddings before, but I remember being like 9, 10, 11 years old, something like that being at a wedding reception and sitting in my seat and laughing hysterically as people were dancing that had no business dancing at all. And at the time, I didn't understand that there is a direct correlation between alcohol consumption and willingness to dance. Like those two things are scientifically linked to one another, right? And so I just kind of sat back and, and, and I laughed. Now, back in the day, sometimes it still happens. As a pastor, I do some weddings and I find myself at a fair amount of wedding receptions and things like that. Back in the day, if you wanted dancing at your wedding, you had to hire either a band or a DJ, right? Anymore, now it's just a drunk groomsman with his iPod and that's really, really lame. But when I got married almost 14 years ago, we had a really, really good DJ and a good DJ is really perceptive. What they will do is they will play some kind of middle of the road music and songs that don't really get people moving very much until they see that they have a critical mass of people in the room. And it's at that point, they will play a song that they know, they know it will guarantee to elicit the response that they're looking for, which is for people to dance, all right? So like, I don't know what it was for you, but back in high school, my high school was the Dunbar Bulldogs. And so every good DJ at homecoming and prom knew that if they played the Atomic Dog, we we couldn't help but move to that song. I mean, it went from like a few people on the dance floor to the whole school on the dance floor like that. Now, it may not have been Atomic Dog for you, but there's one guaranteed song at every wedding reception I've ever been to, and that's the electric slide, right? Let's keep it right here. Then back. And then you always know the confidence level of the person doing the electric slide based on the turn. There's those who look around like, oh, we're turning now, we're turning, okay. And then there's those who just feel good about it. So they take like a big kick and then they go down and then they kick back like this because they feel good about the electric slide, right? Now, the electric slide has been replaced though by the cha-cha slide. Everybody clap your hands. Now, the thing I love about this song is it works because it's white people proof. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like it gives us instructions on what to do throughout the song. It doesn't leave anything to chance. It just tells us what to do. Slide to the left. Okay, I can do that. Slide to the right. One hop this time. I got this, right? Now, the only part where it all falls apart for us white people is when he just gives us the free reign to just cha-cha and everybody's like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I don't know what to do. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, I don't know what it was for you growing up. Maybe it was Love Shack. Maybe it was Dancing Queen. Maybe it was YMCA or God help us, the Macarena that came out when I was in high school. Or Ice Ice Baby, or for those of you a little older, you hear the beginning of Ice Ice Baby and you think it's under pressure, but it's not, it's Ice Ice Baby. And 
bust a move or can't touch this or Harlem Shake or the Dougie, whatever it is, there are certain songs that if they're played, and we watched it happen all weekend out in the lobby and in here, when those songs are played, people just absolutely can't help but respond to those songs. But then there's a whole other group of people, right? There's a whole other group of people that it does not matter what song is played, they will not dance right? They keep their arms folded. They are wallflowers. They hold up the wall. It doesn't matter what is played. They're not going to respond. And some of you are here going, I could have sworn we came into church this morning. What are we talking about, Scott? Well, here's what we're talking about. This actually flows really well with what Jesus is going to be teaching us this morning. We're going to look at the ways that different people respond to Jesus. Because we've been looking, we've been tracking for almost a year now at these last three and a half years of Jesus's life where he did all his teaching and ministry and things like that. And we've been listening to some of Jesus's most famous talks, famous sermons, famous things that he said. And we've been looking at what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Now we're kind of transitioning into a phase where now we're going to look at how do people respond to Jesus? Because Jesus is singing a song, Jesus is playing a tune. And the question becomes, how are people going to respond to that? So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. If not, pull out your programs. It'll be in there. It'll also be on the screens. And so we wrapped up last week this Sermon on the Mount deal that Jesus was doing. And right after Jesus delivers that really famous sermon, this is what happens. Matthew 11 verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that sermon, he went from there to teach and preach in the city. So he takes the sermon on the road. He he delivers that sermon a whole bunch of other places. Now, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, if you've been tracking with us for a while, you may remember this series we did a little while back called Five Guys. And one of the five guys we talked about in that series was this guy, John. Now there's two guys named John who kind of are in and out of Jesus's story in the New Testament. One is one of his very close disciples. The other is this guy, and he's famously known as John the Baptist. He's Jesus's first cousin. He's kind of the forerunner to Jesus, the one who was supposed to kind of prepare the way in the hearts and minds of people for Jesus. And he was a little bit off his rocker. Like he lived out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey every day. He he grew his hair really, really long and he wore camel hair. And everybody kind of looked at him like you kind of look at a street corner preacher, right? They're like, not sure what he's going to do next. And he was known for all of those things, including baptizing people, but he was also known for his level of boldness. He would just speak the truth whether, whether people wanted to hear it or not. And so that's exactly what's landed him in prison at this point in time in his life because there was this local king named Herod who took his own brother's wife to be his wife and John the Baptist just called him out publicly about it in front of a whole bunch of people in front of a big audience one day. Herod didn't like that so he had him thrown in prison. So his circumstances, John's circumstances have changed and there's a lot of water under the bridge with John and Jesus. I mean, John has baptized Jesus. He's told all his disciples to follow Jesus. He said, listen, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. But in this moment where his circumstances have changed, the same thing that happens to a lot of us happens to John. When your circumstances change, especially for the worse, that's when doubt creeps in. That's when fear creeps in and that's when insecurity creeps in and that's what's happening with John. And so he sends word by his disciples to Jesus to go, listen, just let me know. Are you really the one that we've been looking for? Are you really the one we've been waiting for? Because I've been hearing stories about your behavior and stuff like that and all this doesn't add up and I'm in prison and that doesn't seem right. So are you the one that we've been looking for? And so here's how Jesus responds to those disciples that ask the question. Look at verse four. And Jesus answered them. Yeah, go, go tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here's what Jesus is doing that's very subtle for us to pick up on, but would have been painfully obvious for John to pick up on. What Jesus does, he goes, listen, okay, here's the answer John's looking for. Go back to him and report what you see in here. Uh, Lame people are walking, deaf people are hearing, blind people are seeing, poor people are having good news preached to them. What he's doing is he's quoting this kind of laundry list of expectations that are given in the Old Testament over and over and over again for what to look for, to what to expect for when the Messiah comes. So when the Messiah comes, these are the things that he's gonna do. Now the interesting thing is that laundry list almost always ended with setting prisoners free. Lame walk, dead are raised, blind see, deaf hear, and he sets the captives free, sets the prisoners free. Did you notice Jesus left one out? Where's John right now? In prison. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's sending a message loud and clear saying, oh yeah, I'm the one you've been looking for, but here's what you need to understand. You're gonna die in that prison. Have a nice day, right? I mean, that's a hard message to hear, but that's exactly how it pans out for John. Later, he gets his head cut off and delivered on a platter when in the middle of a drunken party, the king rewards a stripper he becomes infatuated with based on her performance, who just so happens to be the daughter of the wife that he stole from his brother. Does that not sound like Jerry Springer, right? (laughs) They left that part out when I was in Sunday school. They didn't teach me that part, but that's how it plays out for John. It does not go well. For John, so Jesus closes the message to John and says, blessed is the person who's not offended by me. And that word offended is an interesting word. It's the Greek word scandalizo. It's where we get our word scandal. He says, blessed is the person who doesn't get tripped up over me. Blessed is the person who's not scandalized by me. Blessed is the person who does not negatively respond to Jesus or live an unresponsive life to Jesus. Blessed is the person who doesn't get tripped up, offended over Jesus. And that's what our whole value of excellent environments is all about around here. We're trying to remove every obstacle that could get in the way of you connecting to God except for Jesus. If you come here and you hear something Jesus says or witness something Jesus does or whatever and it offends you, it trips you up, you can't get past it, you don't like it, you don't buy it, whatever that is, we can't change that. That's between you and him. We just don't want you getting tripped tripped up over things that don't matter. So Jesus is telling John, man, don't get tripped up, man. Hang with me in this. I know your circumstances are tough, but keep your eyes on me. I am the one you've been looking for. I am the one you've been waiting for. So these disciples of John go back to deliver this really hard message to John. And Jesus is now left with this crowd of people who've witnessed this whole exchange happen. Look at what he says, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what'd you go out into the wilderness to see when you went to see John? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? No, what, what then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, but I tell you even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, that'd be everybody in case you were wondering, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, here's what Jesus has after these messengers, disciples of John walk away. He has an audience full of people, many of whom have trusted John the Baptist, followed John the Baptist, and been baptized by John the Baptist, who are now going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like John the Baptist just had like a weak moment. John the Baptist was like wrestling with doubt. Like, what do we do with that? And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't mistake this man's weak moment for his message being weak, and don't mistake his weak moment for him being weak. 
Everything John said, you can trust. What'd you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That's not who he is. Did you go out to see a guy wearing soft clothing? That literally translates, did you go out to see a man wearing women's clothing? And Jesus says, no, those guys live in king's palaces, which I think is really funny. And he goes, no, no, no. You went and saw this strong man with this strong message. And as awesome as John is, what Jesus is saying is there's something better than knowing John, and that's knowing Jesus. That's knowing me is what Jesus is saying. And at this point in the message, uh, Luke gives us this really interesting detail in parentheses. He says this, when all the people heard this from Jesus and the tax collectors too, aka the worst, most sinful, hated people in in the room that day, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, the religious guys and the lawyers, the ones who knew the Bible backwards and forward, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So all the people in the room who knew their sinful, broken people heard Jesus's message and went, that's good news that's what we were banking on all the religious people who thought they could earn God's affection and attention they rejected Jesus's purpose for their life and rejected his message see the only difference between religious people and everybody else is religious people don't understand the fact that they're sinful just like everybody else and they're in desperate need of a savior sinners know they're sinful and recognize they could never be good enough for God and so they hear Jesus's message they hear the song Jesus is singing as a good song as a song worth responding to as a song of good news look at how this goes down even further verse verse 12 From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's kind of complicated. Let me break it down real simply. When he uses the word by force, that's a word that's often used in the Bible to describe rape. And so what he's saying is simply this. As God's plan has unfolded in the course of human history, the most typical response to that plan has been to try to stop it by force to try to end it to try to make it stop in its tracks and there's been these representatives of God over the years these these prophets one of the most prominent ones he talks about there was this guy named Elijah and a lot of the Jews they believed that there was going to be another prophet like Elijah who was going to pave the way for the Messiah and Jesus is going John the Baptist is that guy and just like it turned out for all those prophets who were tortured and persecuted and murdered that's how it's going to go down with John in other words when God's kingdom comes On earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed that it would, the response that that kingdom is typically met with is opposition. And that's just true, isn't it? You won't see it very often in mainstream media, but today, this very day, there are Christians all over the world who are being attacked and jailed and tortured and murdered. And while we don't face that kind of opposition right now in this country... I don't think it's a long day off from when people standing on stages teaching from the Bible are going to be labeled as people who are hate speech people and they're going to be drug off of stages and they're going to be threatened with fines and imprisonment and things like that. Not because of what the Bible's saying is hateful, but ironically enough because what God delivers to us in the Bible is loving enough to point out the fact that we shouldn't just always blindly follow our hearts and our feelings because that's what gets us in the most trouble in our lives, that we should actually follow an objective truth that God's been so kind to give us. But when you deliver a message like that that just following what you want to do whenever you want to do it is not the best way to do life that type of message is always met with extreme opposition and that's only going to increase that's what Jesus is saying then he moves on and he kind of gives us what the crux of this series is built around when he says this verse 16 but to what shall I compare this generation it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates we played the flute for you and you did not dance 
We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So Jesus is looking at these people on this day and he's going, what, what, what do I compare this generation to? It's like, uh, you guys are like kids playing in the marketplace. And that's where kids played a lot while their parents did business. And they would sometimes play these games like, let's play the wedding game and let's act out a wedding, things like that. And you're, you're like these kids who say, we played the flute for you. We're playing the wedding game and you won't dance. You won't participate. We're playing the best wedding song and you won't even get up on the dance floor. We're playing electric slide and you can't even do that one, right? We, then we sang a dirge. We played a funeral game and you didn't mourn. We sang sad songs, funeral songs, and you were still unresponsive. You wouldn't play along. We played like... Kenny G, and you wouldn't respond to that either. Whatever, whatever the most depressing music you can think of, all right? Fill in the blank, all right? <laughs> Kenny G comes to mind for me, all right? So, so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guys, listen, I've come with great news. I've got like this joyful message of forgiveness, and it's this message that this, this is not reserved for those who are good, but it's for those who know they're not good enough. This is for those who are lost and broken and hurting. God has sent me, his one and only son, not to condemn you, but rather to save you and to lead you in a better way, not just to point to a better way, but to show you how it's done. And he's saying, listen, that's worth celebrating, and yet you're leaning against the wall. There's a great song playing, and you won't dance. Now think, what's the number one reason people won't dance at weddings and parties and celebrations? Pride. Pride. I don't want to look foolish and so I'm not going to get out there. And worse yet, what some people do is they, they sit there and they fold their hands, they won't participate, they miss out on all the fun and they make fun of everybody who's having fun on the dance floor and they go, look how stupid they look, look how foolish they are. I think that's the same thing that sometimes gets in the way of following Jesus. We don't want to appear foolish. We don't want to appear like we need help. Like we can't do it on our own. We don't want to look like little kids. Here's one of the beautiful things about little kids. They'll dance anywhere. They will. I watched one do it right back here behind the sound, but they'll dance anywhere. They have no shame. They look at you like, do you see what I just did? I'm legit. Like you should come over here and dance like I'm dancing. They'll dance in the grocery store. They'll dance wherever it is. But we, this is why Jesus always challenged us to be more like kids, by the way. We are so hung up on our pride. We're afraid to look foolish and we're afraid to look like little children and say, you know what? I'm like a little kid when it comes to comparing myself to Jesus. I need your help. We don't want to look foolish. That's why Jim quoted this verse a couple weeks ago. For the message of the cross is what? Give me the word foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it's the power of God here's the way I would translate that today for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who aren't dancing but man to those of us who are dancing it is it's the power of God Jesus goes I brought this great message of great joy and you won't celebrate and then he contrasts that and he goes John he came bringing a message and it was an important message a hard message a stern message the message was you're broken you're sinful and you need to repent you need to turn back to God it was a hard serious message that demanded a response and he says yet still you stood there with your arms folded leaning against the wall refusing to respond appropriately there's a sad song playing and you won't dance to that one either it doesn't matter what music is being played you won't dance to it it's like middle school dances used to be back in the day all the guys on this side all the girls on this side and an empty dance floor and the middle nobody's responding to the music look at what Jesus says now verse 18 for John he came neither eating nor drinking and they say he's got a demon the son of man Jesus came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners watch this yet wisdom Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds he goes you guys are absurd John 
came and he lived in the wilderness. He didn't eat food with you guys. He didn't drink alcohol. You had to go to him. He didn't go to you. And you guys all wrote him off like he was demon possessed and crazy. You thought he was a lunatic. I come, I go to every party. I sit down at every meal. I have a couple drinks with you and you write me off and you go, I'm a drunk. I'm a, I'm a glutton. See, here's the deal. What Jesus is pointing out is something that we see all the time. When you don't want to deal with the content of what someone is saying, all you have to do is demonize that person person, label that person so that you feel justified in not paying attention to that person. What's the best example of that in our culture? Politics, right? You got two teams, all right? Two aisles, all right? Somebody can say something absolutely true, absolutely right. We all should get on board with it. And half the room will obstinately go, absolutely not. Why? Because he said it. That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus is saying that's exactly what you're doing. You're looking for an excuse to be unresponsive. You're searching for a justification and a reason to keep holding up the wall. You won't dance and no one can make you. People do this all the time with Jesus, all kinds of different defense mechanisms. Oh, Jesus, he was just a good teacher. Oh, Jesus, that whole, thing, that whole Jesus thing is a myth. Jesus never even existed, even though we have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than we do of George Washington, just for your knowledge. Jesus was a prophet, right? He lived a long time ago. Times have changed. What he has to say is not very relevant. Those are all defense mechanisms to not actually deal with the content of what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did. Because when someone comes along and they go, I'm the son of God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the father except through me. You need to deal with that one way or the other. You need to respond to the content of what he's saying and examine it and either go, that's absolutely not true. Or you know what? He's making a good case. Or when someone comes along and all the evidence, an overwhelming amount of evidence points to the fact that on a day in history, they died. And then a couple days later, they came back to life. Like you kind of need to respond to that. That's worth dealing with. That's worth being responsive to. In other words, for good or for bad, again, you gotta, you gotta make a decision based on that. So when Jesus comes along and he closes this out by saying, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Another translation says, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, wisdom is justified by what it produces. The result of wisdom is evidenced when it's put into practice. So when you do these things I've been teaching you, you will see how it pans out. Think back to last week when Jim was teaching and we're talking about these two houses, one built on sand, one built on a rock. The wisdom of building your house on a rock really shows up when what? A storm comes, hits that house, the storm leaves, and the house is still what? Still standing, it's still there. Then you go, oh, that was wise (laughs) to build your house on a rock. So what Jesus is saying is just watch. Just watch how this all pans out. Watch how it plays out, and one day you will see. So here's where I think this needs to land in our hearts and in our minds today. I've got, I, Scott, I have to look in the mirror and do something I don't like to do. I gotta look at myself and be honest and ask a really hard question. How responsive am I to Jesus? How responsive am I to Jesus? And some of you are going, whoa, 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 time out, Scott. I haven't even bought into this whole Jesus thing. Somebody brought me here today. They said we were going to get coffee and then we walked in here. Like, I don't know what happened. All right, listen, we're really, really glad you're here. There's a whole bunch of us around here. We're not sure what we believe about Jesus, but this is a safe place to process that. So if that's where you are, I'm really, really glad you're here. I just have one question for you. Are you willing to give Jesus a fair shake? Are you giving Jesus a fair shake? One one of the things I love about John the Baptist in this story is he has doubts like we all have doubts, but he has the courage to look for answers. He he actually goes to Jesus with his doubts and seeks answers. And I, I think a lot of us, a lot of times, we allow little doubts to give us an excuse to be really lazy, not explore answers. 
So someone watches 20 minutes. I get emails all the time. I watch 15 minutes of this show on the Discovery Channel about the Bible or about Jesus and I don't believe in the Bible or Jesus anymore. Poorly produced Discovery Channel show, 20 minutes worth, you're gonna bet your life on that. Like Discovery Channel, great with like woodland creatures and bear girls and people like that. Really bad with the Bible, all right? Be a little bit more courageous than that. Don't bet your life on 20 minutes of poorly produced television. Seek an answer. I'm not saying having doubts is stupid. I'm saying being ruled and driven by doubts without actually seeking answers is lazy. Nobody wants to be lazy. So what if you were willing to doubt your doubts and to ask honest questions? And like Jim says all the time around here, are you looking for truth? And most of us go, of course I'm looking for truth. But then he asks a harder question. Are you open to the idea that that truth may be different than what you hoped it would be or even expected it to be or wanted it to be? And that's where a lot of us tap out. You go, no. No, because we have all these preconceived notions. There's a song we want Jesus to sing, and unless he sings it, we're not dancing. If Jesus upsets our belief system, if he points to a different way to do life, if he points to something other than what we've already decided is best, then we are out. We're not in. We're not dancing. But what? What if you have the courage to be open and willing to respond to who Jesus is and what he does on his terms, not yours? See, this is a safe place to process all of that. And then for those of us in the room who were followers of Jesus, there's two big challenges, I think, for us today, for me especially. One is this, do I really mourn my sin? Do you really mourn your sin? And when I hear the word mourn, I think, feel bad. Like, do I really feel bad about my sin? Do I really feel sad about it? That's not what Jesus had in mind. The word mourn literally means to demonstrate your internal grief with an external action. Doesn't mean just feel bad about it. It means when I sin, when I fall short, when I screw up, when I don't do what I aim to do, when I can't even live up to my own standards, much less God's standards, which I do every day I fail and fall short, just like we all do, what is my response to that? Do I do anything with that or do I just kind of just tritely go, oh, well, no big deal, I'm forgiven. Bible has a lot to say about that. Do I trivialize what Jesus did for me by abusing the gift that he gave me? Do I fail to recognize that my sin was so serious it required God sending his one and only son to die on a cross to make payment for everything I've done that when I sin, I'm actually spitting on the gift that God has given me? Do I see it through those lenses? See, when someone gives you a gift that costs them something, that costs them a lot, our response should be at least a couple things. One, enormous gratitude. And second, to take care of the gift that was given because it costs so much to the giver but when we abuse the gift it says a lot about what we think about the giver of the gift does it not see at Flatirons we always talk about this and on two sides two spectrums one is that man we we are all broken we are all sinful people we all fall short of the glory of God and we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to church we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus the whole point is we can't do that and Jesus cleans us up from the inside out he does for us what we could never do for ourselves but God loves us so much that we can come as we are but he also loves us so much he would never leave us that way he wants better for us. He wants good for us. And here's the deal. His love for you is not dependent on your level of obedience, but listen to this, okay? This is important. The level of our obedience will directly impact whether our life gets better or not. Notice I didn't say easier. You're obedient, your life gets easier. That's not what I'm saying. Obedience leads to a better life though. That's why it's called a better way. If it didn't lead to a better life, Jesus wouldn't point to it. So the question is, what if we took our sin seriously enough, seriously enough to move out of it, move beyond it, let go of it, and embrace the fact that Jesus conquered sin on our behalf so that it doesn't have to control us anymore? How about this? Come as you are, but don't remain as you are. 
Why would you want to do that? Don't settle for sin and brokenness, but pursue obedience and being made whole. Don't settle. We settle in so many places in our lives. I'll give you one big example that's been on my heart. I'm going to be talking about this one a lot at our men's retreat this fall in September. Uh, But the big one that I've been thinking about a lot and I've been studying about a lot lately is fatherhood. What it means to be a father, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a man. I've been studying that in the Bible. I've been studying that in Christian books and just regular old books. I've been studying it all over the place. And everybody pretty much agrees that our culture is suffering from a crisis of fatherhood, which I think is a result of a crisis of manhood. And there's a million contributors to that. I'll list just one of them for you. We live in a culture that I believe demeans manhood at every corner. Flip the channels on TV and watch a few sitcoms just every now and then for three or four minutes and you'll see what I'm talking about. Pretty much every guy on television is trivialized as an idiot, incompetent, lazy, irresponsible, silly, weak, unimportant, unnecessary, and stupid person. And here's the ironic part. In a culture that's suffering from all the ill effects of fatherhood, which are far too many to number, but to suffice it to say, if we could fix our fatherhood problem, we'd have about two or three problems left to fix and that would be about it. I really, really believe that. In the same culture that's suffering from all those ill effects of fatherhood, in that same culture, fatherhood's being communicated as, eh, it's kind of a nice to have, but it's not necessary. If you got it, that's great, but if not, it's no big deal. I'll push even further. I think subtly what men are being communicated to in this culture is in order to be a viable member of society, a helpful member of society, you need to be more like a woman. And I could quote for you endlessly the amount of educational elite who have written exactly that. And what's being communicated to men is you're just a bunch of screw-ups, you're a bunch of bunch of bad dads, unimportant and broken people, and you need to walk further away from your manhood so that we can like tame you so that you can be like helpful in society. And a lot of men have just thrown up their hands and given up and embraced that identity, or they've stopped trying, or at best, they're just living their life on their defensive, trying to play not to lose. And anybody who's played sports for more than five minutes knows the quickest way to lose is to play not to lose. You go to that prevent defense, you get scored on like that. Isn't that the way it works? And all I'm going to do at this retreat is simply this. I'm going to challenge men that all of that is garbage. That we don't have to accept that. And what if we as men have the courage to not embrace, believe, or swallow all these bad stories that have been told about us and we embrace the better story? And I'm going to say, what if we embrace manhood and not some castrated androgynous version of it, but the real kind? And what if we embrace fatherhood and all the responsibility that entails? What if we embraced our role as husbands and the leadership that demands? And what if instead of always playing not to lose, we played to win? And what if we became dangerous? And I mean dangerous in a good way. What if we became a force to be reckoned with, someone the enemy had to deal with what if we did damage for good in our homes and our families and our communities and our church what if we didn't settle for what we've been told we are or who we've even come to believe we are and what if we embrace the pursuit of who we can become in Christ Jesus and what if we were men who had the courage to really deeply mourn our sin for what it is and yet we still had the courage to turn away from it and to repent and to turn toward God and run hard after him men you need to come with me on this retreat Whether you're, whether you're, whether you got kids, whether you don't have kids, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're divorced, whether you're, whether you're newly married, whatever that is, if you're a man, you need to come on this retreat. You can sign up in the lobby today. There's a booth out there. I'll be standing next to it. You can come ask a bunch of questions, all right? But I've got some more thoughts on it, just in case you were wondering, all right? Here, here we are, all right? 
so could we as followers of Jesus be honest and examine our lives and could we ask the hard question, are we being responsive to our sin? Are we being responsive to Jesus? And what does that look like in our life? I don't know. It could be a million different things. And then we could go on on and on, but I'll give you just a few examples. Maybe being responsive to Jesus, dancing to the song that he's playing means finally forgiving someone so you can be set free from this bondage of holding somebody holding somebody up to something that happened so long ago. Maybe it means finally stepping up and serving your wife the way Jesus has served you and the way he demonstrated to serve others. Maybe it means finally affirming your husband as opposed to always nagging him, criticizing him, making fun of him to his face and behind his back to other people. Does it mean stop demanding that your children provide you with your worth based on their performance on a field, in a classroom, or in their social life, and allowing your children to actually be imperfect people like you're an imperfect person? Does it mean finally stepping up and serving in this church and getting your hands dirty? Does it mean being honest with your friends about what's going on in your life as opposed to always hiding and lying like you've been doing for years? Does it mean to admit that addiction and finally ask for help and call it what it is because you've been a slave to it for far too long? Those are all very good questions to ask. Let me ask you an even better question. Do you celebrate your forgiveness? Really? Do you celebrate this amazing song Jesus is playing for you and the freedom it brings and the grace that it brings? Do you really celebrate that? Because listen, write this one down. The only reason we can pursue obedience to Jesus is because we've been forgiven by Jesus. The only reason we can do anything for Jesus is because Jesus did something for us first before we could ever do anything for him. He went to a cross for us on our worst moment, on our worst day. And this will give you a foreshadowing of where we're going next week. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Galatians 5.1 says it this way. For freedom Christ set you free. It seems obvious, but apparently it needed to be said. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. Christ didn't set you free so that you could walk around like a slave under this bondage, this yoke, this thing that just weighs you down, the weight of sin, the weight of shame, all of that stuff. No, he set you free so you could be free. Which is why it says, stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're a free person. Quit acting like a slave. Do you live free, knowing that the Father's love for you has already been demonstrated by the fact that on a day in history, he sent his one and only son to die for you, and on a day in history, that same son came back to life, conquering Satan's sin and death for you. Do you really celebrate and live out of that identity, knowing that you are a much-loved child of God, and that you have a faithful Father who's your defender, your protector, your comforter and your forgiver do you walk around living your life as a response to that amazing grace in your life here's the story he's playing the flute for you are you going to dance or not let's stand up and pray God we come before you and I pray for every person in this room who came in here feeling like a slave to sin and to shame that they can walk out of here knowing that they can be set free and they are set free because of who your son Jesus is and what he's done. In his name we pray, amen.